You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1890th edition of St Edmundsby News Talk for the 4th of August 2022. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Chris Payne. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will commence with the headlines. Funding gap between capital and east has grown, Think Tank says. Council cash problems caused by war, Covid virus and the cost of living crisis. St John ambulance crews to take 999 calls, call outs to tackle long waits. Celebrations as Suffolk's first new library in a decade opens. The gap between the amount of government funding received by people in the east of England and London has grown since the levelling up policy was introduced, new research has found. Since 2019, levelling up has been a key plank in the government's policy agenda, but research from think tank IPPRN North says that in many ways, levelling up was just business as usual. The research found that government spending per person in the East rose 4% to £11,092 between 2019 and 2022. Over the same time, spending per head in London rose nearly 8% to £13,442. In the East, per person spending remains below the England average of 11,524. This rose 2% in the years to 2022. Chris Starkle, Chief Executive of New Anglia LEP, said the LEP had consistently argued for the East to get a fair deal from government and this report shows the funding we receive per person is still below the national average. Government agrees that Norfolk and Suffolk are part of the levelling up agenda, so we need to see see the translate into investment. We have acknowledged some success through the growth deal and town deals, but further investment is needed to unlock the region's potential. James Parman, chairman of the Eastern Powerhouse, a business body, business-led body aiming to boost the economy of the east of England, said. These figures only confirm what we've known for a long time, that the East of England is seen as a second-class citizen when it comes to rounds of investment from government, while the levelling up agenda is laudable. It simply must include the East if it is to, be, if it is to succeed, practically in supercharging reasons and rejuvenating the national economy. The East has always been at the back of the queue when it comes to government funding and yet just a small um, uptick in investment could net the country an extra £31.2 billion a year in GDP and an additional £11.5 billion of tax take for the Exchequer. A spokesman for the Department of Levelling Up Housing and Communities said, We do not recognise these figures. We are investing in ambitious local projects to transform disused spaces and deliver green transport in 12 towns in the east of England. 
backed by £287 million from the town's fund. We are creating jobs and driving investment with Freeport East. We understand the pressures facing local authorities, which is why we made an additional £3.7 billion available to councils in recognition of their vital role and to ensure they are able to deliver key services. West Suffolk Council is facing a potential shortfall of £700,000 in its budget. Blaming the continuing impact of COVID-19, the cost of living crisis and war in Ukraine for the problems. The figure was revealed in the authorities' performance quarter one report, discussed at the Performance and Audit Scrutiny Committee last week. The Council had budgeted £500,000 to be taken from reserves this year and put towards recovering lost income. But the report indicates that a worst-case scenario could see this amount rise to £700,000 to £1.2 million. Conservative councillor Sarah Broughton, deputy leader and cabinet member for resources and property, said the national impact of recovery post-Covid-19 and the current cost of living crisis is impacting all public services and we have to plan for that. We budgeted for less income this year due to these factors, but issues such as the war in Ukraine is having a detrimental effect on all UK council services and finances. We could be faced with needing to find an additional £700,000 under the scenario set out in the report. We have plans in place to address some of the issues, but the majority of this is out of the control of the council and affected by national behaviours by the public as well as the international situation. This also means many of our services are needed even more, and therefore it is likely we will look to general reserves to help cushion the blow. We will continue to keep the situation under review. The areas in which actual income is forecasted to be lower than budgeted income from the highest amount are income from car parking at £948,000 lower, and income from markets at £99,140 lower. Total income from sales, contributions and reimbursements still at just under £477,500 lower than budgeted. The areas in which spending is forecasted to be higher than budgeted by the greatest amount are premises costs at £504,830 higher and supplies and services costs at just under £397,590 higher. Crews from St John Ambulance have been begun responding to 999 calls across the country, including the east of England. The plan, which came into force yesterday, sees the charity provide support to England's 10 NHS ambulance trusts, as was announced in a bid to combat the health service's deterioration in response times. The deal has seen the NHS sign a £30 million contract with St John for the organisation to act as an ambulance auxiliary service. Crews are expected to deliver at least 5,000 hours of support per month, equating to more than 412-hour shifts. Professor Sir Stephen Powis, NHS National Medical Director, said the new ambulance auxiliary service helps to build on the, ro- on the vital role 
played by St John's Ambulance since the formation of the Health Service and will complement existing services. This new agreement with one of our longest partners is a welcome addition as the NHS does everything it can to boost capacity ahead of what is set to be another difficult winter. A report in June revealed emergency ambulance response times for Category 2 emergencies in the east of England were more than double the national target. It hoped the 800 ambulance crew members, both employees and volunteers, and over 250 ambulances belonging to St John's Nationwide, will go a long way in helping to lower response times over the next four years. The charity's Deputy Chief Executive and Chief Operating Officer Richard Lee said, St John's has always supported the health service through, through emergency ambulance provision during peak periods and seasonal demands, but this new contract gives the vital relationship between our charity and NHS England firm foundations for the future. This evolution of our long-standing relationship with the health service enables us to put in the additional long-term planning and investment in people and, and fleet that's required to live up to our mission of being an ambulance auxiliary that can be relied upon every time. Health and Social Care Secretary Steve Barclay said, St John's Ambulance 800 crew members have invaluable experience on the front line and have worked hand in hand with our emergency services to keep patients safe in the past, delivering approximately 200,000 hours of support across England during the pandemic, providing extra resilience to ambulance service when ne services when needed and supporting A&E departments during major emergencies. Suffolk's first new library in more than 10 years has opened to coincide with Suffolk Library's 10th birthday celebrations. The county's newest library branch opened yesterday in Morton Hall Community Centre, Bury St Edmunds. It will be staffed for 17 hours per week with new self-service equipment allowing customers to access the library and borrow items for an additional 50 hours per week. Bruce Leake, Chief Executive of Suffolk Library, said, We're delighted to be working with Suffolk County Council, West Suffolk Council and partners across these two communities to deliver the many benefits a new library brings. We pride ourselves on working with local people to create the service they want at the heart of their community. So it's fitting that we mark our 10th birthday by launching two exciting projects that will enable us to better connect local people and support their needs by bringing the extraordinary everyday to life in their area. The new Morton Hall Library will increase the number of Suffolk libraries from 44 to 45, on top of which there are an additional three mobile libraries. Over the past year, several of the county's libraries have moved to new and improved facilities, including Milden Hall, Saxmundham, Southwold, Needham Market and Long Melford. Morton Hall Community Centre has been extended and refurbished to accommodate the new library, with the project largely being paid for by funding from local housing developers to meet the needs of the growing community. Councillor Robert Everett West Suffolk Council's Cabinet Member for Families and Communities said, We are delighted by this announcement, which has come as a result of some fantastic collaborative work 
between the community association, the library service, the town, district and county councils, as well as input from our local ward councillors and the residents' association. We have worked to help the centre become a sustainable community-owned and run facility, and as with our other hub projects, we look forward to seeing the new library service at the heart of community life. We are moving on to our general news section. The NHS Trust, which runs West Suffolk Hospital, declared a critical internal incident a fortnight ago due to immense pressure on its services. The challenges West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust faced were outlined in papers to its board. A report from Chief Executive Craig Black said there was an immense pressure on services which was taking a toll on staff. Due to a COVID-19 resurging, the Bury St Edmunds Hospital's ongoing estate maintenance programme, impacting capacity and the warm weather leading to an increase in demand, the Trust declared a critical internal incident. The incident was extended but was officially stepped down at 5pm last Tuesday. In the report, Mr Black said, We have and will continue to do everything in our power to mitigate this pressure, including working with external partners to support discharges and using bank and agency staff to fill gaps in staffing to maintain our current service level. We recognise and continue to be amazed by the unbelievable commitment our staff have showed through this period and we will work to support them to ensure that they and our patients are cared for. None of this is easy for staff and I am urging staff to take up our well-being opportunities and look after themselves and to speak up should you have any growing concerns or ideas you would like to raise. Last week, the Berry Free Press revealed that thousands of working days were being lost across the Trust due to staff suffering from stress, anxiety and depression. In his report, Mr Black also addressed waiting times at the Trust. He said the number of patients waiting 104 weeks or more had dropped significantly, significantly from 411 in February to 39 as of July the 5th. Of these, 39 patients, 23 opted to wait to be treated at the Trust and 16 patients are currently unable to receive treatment due to clinical reasons. He added, we are also running extended theatre lists and clinics, including at weekends, increased diagnostics to support timely access to scans and offering digital appointments where appropriate, all to try to treat patients as soon as possible. A Bury St Edmunds Police Community Support Officer has been praised as an angel after coming to the rescue of a pensioner badly injured in a fall who faced a wait for an ambulance of up to 20 hours. Sue Petz, a resident at Montana Care Home in Great Barton, fell outside EE in Buttermarket at about 2.30pm on Monday. City Superior Tyre Moses, manager of the home, said when 999 was called, they were told there would be a long wait for medical assistance. She added, Fortunately, many people, including two retired nurses and the people from the EE and card factory shops, came to help us. They were all so kind. That wait was far too long for Sue to be there. That was not good at all. But luckily, God sent an angel. 
That came in the guise of former West Suffolk Constable and one of two town council-funded police community support officers, Mark Ellis. The ex-police officer of more than 30 years said he was driving his van down Buttermarket when he was hailed down by members of the public. He said they had helped the lady into a chair by then and had her right arm in a sling. Although it was not hot, she could not have been left there for around 20 hours. So I decided I should take her to A&E in the van, as it is as big as an ambulance, and though she was very mobile, people helped her in, and off we went. Little did Mark and Sister Moses know at the time, but Sue had broken her elbow and dislocated her shoulder. On Tuesday, Sister Moses said the pensioner was still at West Suffolk Hospital, waiting for a bed. She said Sue will need an operation. I would just like to thank all the people. God bless them all, from the shop workers, the retired nurses, and the girls and boys, and the policemen who helped us. Told that he had been described as an angel by the Sister Superior, Mark said, I'm humbled that I was talked about in that light, but I was just a glorified taxi driver. It was the members of the public that did the hard work. The series of festive events lined up to replace the Bury St Edmunds Christmas Fair has been revealed. West Suffolk Council announced in March that it would no longer stage the four-day fair, which attracted about 130,000 people to the town, and it would instead be replaced by a linked set of attractions. The Christmas in Bury St Edmunds programme has now been announced and will include a dozen Christmas cabin stalls at the Ark Shopping Centre from November into December. From Thursday, November 24th to Sunday, November 27th, St Edmundsbury Cathedral hosts its Christmas market, selling a variety of handmade crafts and gifts. This will be complemented by about 45 market stalls in the Apex and a mini maker's market in the Unitarian Meeting House. Also at the weekend, the Constitutional Club will hold its Winter Beer Festival with the West Suffolk branch of Canberra. There will also be an array of street entertainment. All the events are being planned, delivered and paid for by the new Christmas in Bury St Edmunds Partnership to replace the Christmas Fair which had been cancelled over the last two years due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The partnership includes the ARC, Abbey St Edmunds Business Improvement District, the Town Council, St Edmundsbury Cathedral and West Suffolk Council. Mark Cordell, Chief Executive of the BID, said that while he was disappointed that it wasn't possible to host a nationally acclaimed Christmas event this year, they had come up with an interesting and longer-lasting series of events, without creating the disruption across the town that the Christmas Fair did. The events are in addition to our Bury St Edmunds Christmas Lights event on November the 17th, which will be followed by the St Edmund's Weekend Spectacular in the Abbey Gardens and Cathedral from November the 17th to the 20th, which is St Edmund's Day. Councillor Susan Glossop, portfolio holder for Growth for West Suffolk Council, said, We want to create an attractive, enjoyable and safe event, and one that will complement the Abbey 1000 celebrations, as well as the other festivities that will be going on in November and December. Cases of petty theft, such as shoplifting in Suffolk between January and May, 
have risen by almost a thousand compared with the same period last year. Data obtained via the Freedom of Information Act showed the figure grew from 2,516 in 2021 to 3,362 in 2022. May and March of this year saw the highest number of cases overall, with the county witnessing 733 and 739 crimes respectively. The news comes as the cost of living continues to increase pressures on households across the UK. The past few months have seen a number of supermarket bosses and retail experts warn of an increase in theft and shoplifting, linking a rising crime to the struggle many are facing with continuously rising prices. Tim Passmore, Suffolk's Police and Crime Commissioner, said, The current cost of living difficulties are very unhelpful for everyone, especially those on low incomes, but I do not see that as an excuse for individuals resorting to criminal behaviour. All theft is unacceptable, and we need to remember that for every theft there is a victim, and the consequences to individuals and businesses could be significant. He added, I'd like to urge all homeowners and businesses to do what they possibly can to prevent these crimes occurring, and remember all crimes need to be reported as quickly as possible to help the police with their investigations. A Suffolk Constabulary spokesman added, Understanding the reasons behind rises in some crime types is a complex matter and crime trends fluctuate from year to year. We constantly review all crime being reported to us to ensure we deploy our resources effectively based on the threat, harm and risk posed. And this will remain the case going forward in the months ahead. Statistics are a useful gauge, however they should not be looked at in isolation and they do not always show the full picture. We always look to prioritise giving a high level of service to those who become victims of crime. We remain determined to ensure we continue to do everything we can to protect the communities we serve and those who are the most vulnerable in our society. Historic photographs of World War II Jewish refugees who started new lives in Suffolk have been donated to the county archives in Bury St Edmunds. On Monday, July the 25th, Claire Duncan from Bungay donated the family photographs to the archive after recognising people featured in the We Have to Move On exhibition at the National Horse Racing Museum in Newmarket. The exhibition looked at refugees living in the Palace House Stables Hostel in Newmarket during 1939-45 to conflict. After seeing an advertisement for the exhibition, Mrs Duncan reached out to Suffolk Archives as she had old photographs of some of the people in the display, inherited from her parents. <coughs> the photos were taken by Mrs Duncan's father, William Barton, in June 1941. William was a conscientious objector who met Friedel Fanger, at a Jewish, ref- a Jewish refugee who fled to Britain with her parents through agricultural work during the war. The couple married in Burwell near Newmarket and Friedel worked in a refugee hostel in Cambridge. It's not clear what their connection to the Palace House Stables hostel was. Mrs Duncan said, I haven't yet seen the exhibition. I'm hoping to soon and I know I'll feel so proud that I was able to contribute to such an important story. 
I'd been wondering what to do with these photos, knowing that they would have meaning and importance and shouldn't just be sitting in an album unseen. I felt really glad that they will now be seen by future generations, but also a little sad that they weren't part of my family's private photos anymore. My mother was also a German-Jewish refugee who helped other refugees at the time, so it feels like a little bit of her is missing now. However, she wouldn't have been so sentimental. The next item is a, a word picture written by Jill Gaines, chair of News Talk, so one of our own people. And she writes, This next item, like last month, is about a sculpture designed for the Abbey 1000 celebrations. These should have taken place in 2020, but were postponed until this year because of the pandemic. The sculpture is on a plinth in the Abbey ruins and changes every so often. This month, the sculpture has been carved from pine from Noughton Park in Bury St Edmunds by John Williams, who worked outside in the Abbey Gardens over six months during the Covid pandemic of 2021. There's a photograph of John with the wood before he started carving, and another photo shows his tools, which have barely changed since the carvings were done for the Abbey a thousand years ago. You can walk around the sculpture and see faces from all four sides. Some bodies are short and squat, while others are tall and tower over the viewer. The faces reflect different emotions, and the skill to portray these is amazing. One appears to be a king with a crown. As you step back from the sculpture, you realise the shape of the whole reflects the Abbey ruins. It is quite stupendous. A man who witnessed a shooting at a, at a Suffolk traveller's site in which two teenagers were shot had a gun held to his head and was told that if he didn't change his statement to police, he and his six sons would be shot, it has been alleged. <coughs> Bernard McDonough, senior, was in his caravan at the Red Lodge Traveller's site ten days after the shooting, when, at around midnight, three men wearing barraclavas allegedly burst in, Ipswich Crown Court was told. One of the men was holding a small black pistol, which was allegedly held to his head, while one of the other men held up a mobile phone, said Duncan O'Donagall, prosecuting. On screen on a video call was the defendant, Christopher Mongan. He said that if Bernard McDonagall didn't drop the charges, he and his six sons would all get shot. Given what had been done already, Bernard McDonagall and his family were fearful that this would happen, said Mr O'Donnell. Christopher Mongan of Wil Wilslow Road, Milton Keynes, has denied an offence of intimidation dating back to April 2021. The court heard that on April the 4th last year there was a serious incident of violent disorder in which two teenagers were shot and wounded. <clears throat> a housing association has addressed the status of long-delayed improvements at a controversial block of flats in Berries and Edmonds. But Havery Housing Partnership... <clears throat> has been unable to outline the nature of the work required at the award-winning eco-friendly Goodfellows development. It revealed in February 2020 that it would rehome tenants in the 12 flats in Kings Road and Parkway after a survey found improvements were required. 
At the time, Havery said it would be carrying out routine maintenance work, and due to the building's design, it was likely they would have to remove the windows, doors and staircases to do so. In October 2020, Havebury confirmed the last remaining tenant would be moving out, but the required work was delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. In January, it said it had been working with consultants and options for good fellows. However, it would seem the work still has not yet taken place. As what was happening with the project and the nature of the work required, Scott Bailey, Director of Development, said, We continue to explore the most effective solution for the improvements needed at Goodfellows. We are committed to providing the highest quality housing, and as a not-for-profit organisation, our priority is to ensure the work will provide a long-lasting solution. With its timber construction, Goodfellows won an RIBA East Sustainability Award and Suffolk Association of Architects Design Award in 2009. The development, built in 2008, has attracted criticism, though over the years, for its appearance. Plans to convert a former Chambers bus depot near Sudbury into ten homes and a shop look set to be approved next week. Ryder Estates Limited, planned for the Bure St Mary site, is made up of a mix of one and two bedroom apartments, as well as three, four and five bedroom houses. The scheme on Church Square also includes a convenience store. The project also includes 22 parking spaces for residents and visitors, as well as a further 18 for retail use. The committee report on the scheme says the site is currently redundant, with a majority of the buildings in a poor state of repair. The proposal seeks to redevelop redevelop the site whilst retaining and repairing the prominent historic frontage to the western boundary and southwestern corner fronting the high street, including the large shutter doors of the former bus garage. The creation of a convenience store would provide jobs as well as services for local residents. The plan will be discussed and voted on on Wednesday, August 10th at the Babra Development Control Committee. Barry St Edmunds pulled out all the stops as two regional judges went on a tour of its floral and environmental delights. Brian Thornton and Angela Barnes from Angler in Bloom were taken on a two-hour trip around the town by organisers and volunteers from Berry in Bloom. Berry in Bloom is one of three towns in the large town category bidding for a gold award in the Anglia in Bloom competition, which forms part of the Royal Horticultural Society's Britain in Bloom campaign. Britain in Bloom encourages the improvement of villages, towns and cities through the imaginative use of trees, shrubs, flowers and landscaping. Barry St Edmunds has previously won a gold award ten times in the regional section and this year the town also has eight entries in the Angler in Bloom Special Awards categories. David Irvine, Barry in Bloom coordinator, said People have made a very strong effort this year and our portfolio is very, very good. West Suffolk Council has also been amazing with its support. We have demonstrated many things including our unique rainwater harvesting system, which will involve five 10,000-litre water tanks installed around the town, the first at Green King, our main sponsor. 
Angling in Bloom covers the six eastern counties of Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire, Essex, Hertfordshire, Norfolk and Suffolk. The results of the judging will be announced in September. And now to our popular letter section, and we begin with a letter from Margaret Roper via email, who writes, I was saddened to read the CQC report on Northcourt Care Home. That was the Berry Free Press of July the 22nd. My husband had been cared for over five years there, and I must say he was cared for very well. Last couple of years he had to be hoisted in and out of bed. All the staff were well trained in using the equipment, and I felt confident that they, was, that they were safe in carrying out this procedure. It's unfortunate that on the day of the inspection the protocol of handling wasn't carried out by possibly one or two staff. The home has had difficulty in recruiting staff, and your article doesn't help encourage people to apply. The staff there are so dedicated and caring. If any of your readers have ever worked in a care home or have nursed, they will have realised how hard a job it is, and for poor pay, working long hours too. Give these dedicated staff the credit they deserve, and the care home which has come on in leaps and bounds over the last few years, even though they've had several new managers. It's recently been redecorated with new furniture. I say well done. Obviously, there are things still to be put right, which I know they will strive to do so. Uh, the next letter is from B. Freeman via email, headed Exemplary Care in Ward F5. Poor old West Suffolk Hospital. Well, I've just spent a few days in urology on F5. Let me tell you the building may not be good, but the whole staff team give exemplary care. They are also caring, thoughtful and professional. The next time the government give out gongs, they should forget the pop stars and the footballers and line up the whole of the urology department on F5 instead. Oh, and the tea ladies should be at the front. <laughs> My next letter is written by um, Barry Peters and he is editor of the Berry Free Press. Anyone waking up in a few months' time with the address of 17 to 18 Cornhill, Berris and Edmonds, will have a very desirous indeed. That's the address of the flats being developed in the former post office building in the centre of town. Where Suffolk Council has led a careful restoration programme for the site. We all watched as the area was cordoned off, the front facade was seemingly precariously supported, but wholly safely, while building work went on behind, and then the whole new build was joined up with the old. <coughs> I used the post office like everyone else. I was initially sad to see it go, and sad to see it just before redevelopment as a shell, with all the old postal paraphernalia in the myriad back rooms. But the rejuvenation of the building for me has been a triumph. Shoppers will be delighted with the new link between the Ark and the old town centre. Traders will welcome the new access route too. Now that the shiny new apartments are ready to roll, maybe some pretty planting would be in order. Metal trees, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> well, we do so remember the metal trees. We so. do, most certainly. <clears throat> However, uh, the next letter is from Malcolm Searle of Berry St Edmunds. Headed, this system is not sustainable. Taking last week's Berry Free Press front page article, 
and contrasting it with Andy Drummond's letter of the same issue, we have the encapsulation of the problem of our age, which is also recognised in the same issue's editorial. There are those who care about others, and there are those whose egos are incapable of working for the collective good when their personal ambitions take precedence. Unfortunately, the system under which we live has put the latter in control of the former. Something is fundamentally wrong, and always has been without dysfunctional needing to be acknowledged. The food producers and carers for our well-being are regarded as second-class citizens, badly paid and taken for granted, while the oppressors eat lavishly, congratulate themselves on their organisational skills and are supported by flatterers and henchmen. This is proving unsustainable, and it's good to see that even Chris Morris is waking up to the fact that we have to deal with the consequences of our generational delusions and mismanagement of not only our own affairs, but mostly the health of planet Earth. Relying on those who put politics and profit before our collective survival is misplaced hope. Action by all is necessary if a better world is to be achieved. John Bailey of South Yorkshire (coughs) writes, Village school still missed. Sir, the question of absence of logic has probably never been more relevant than now. I travelled through a very nice Suffolk village today, Badwell Ash. I was astonished to see the huge amount of expansion going on in terms of the building of dwellings. Whereas, of course, it is good news for the local business people to see village expansion, the reason I raise the question of logic is because this village in recent times saw its village school closed. The village school was an ascent to this particular village, modern, progressive and an extremely well-maintained property. I'm sure it would be even more of an asset with all the recent and current expansion. I would suggest that a village school would now be a major improvement to Badwell Ash Village. Does local or central government ever consider future needs or requirements of such localities and people any more? I am sure the above is not an isolated example either. All seems amazingly short-sighted to me at all the various levels. This letter is from Graham Dale, Stowmarket, headed Sad to See Shops Close. Sir, the recent announcement that quality jewellers Thurlow Champness and Sons in Bury St Edmunds is to close after some 277 years trading is a moment of real sadness. Almost at the same time has come the realisation that, despite courageously carrying on through difficult times, ironmongers M.W. Partridge of Hadley is also to close. The firm will close a few months short of its bicentenary. I've never aspired to own a Rolex watch, but had I done so, Thurlow Champness would have been the natural jewellers to try. Ipswich itself lost the quality family jewellers Croydon and Sons many years ago. If one needed anything for the home, then partridges would be the place to try for advice and quality. When working for Baber Council in the 1970s, I became aware of what a unique business partridges was. It was like stepping back into a more unhurried era, and the shopping experience as a result felt completely natural. Time moves on relentlessly, and as time changes, so do tastes and fashions. Technology and the pandemic have really dealt a body blow to traditional businesses like these. 
If it is sad for us, it is equally traumatic for the owners and staff, who may not have known anything else. As we realise our high streets have drastically changed and there is no longer a need for such old established firms, life perhaps will never be the same again. This last week has seen the continuation of queues as people seek to get away for a holiday. And John Dell of Shotley writes, Sir, I understand that a number of Conservative MPs and ministers, most of whom supported the Leave campaign, have blamed the French customs officers for the delays at Dover. Naturally, it's always someone else's fault. Can I suggest to them that they may have overlooked an explanation? If it was the fault of the French, could it be they were simply acting on examples set by members of this government? Have they given any consideration to the possibility that the French were simply taking back control and exercising sovereignty? Perhaps Brexit was a two-edged sword. And on the same general subject from Colin Rossini of Dover Court, <coughs> how helpful of right-wing Conservative MP John Redwood to advise people to shun France. I would advise them to shun Mr Redwood for not recognising the passport changes Brexit has delivered to frustrated travellers. We need no further distortion from Brexit buffoons who deceived the public in their mad quest to get Brexit done. My next letter is from Graham, <coughs> sorry, Graham Day of Stowmarket. How pleased I was to see in the Berry Free Press that there is now, within the community section, column inches devoted to Stowmarket. When I moved to Stowmarket in 1978, the population of the town was some 7,000. The local newspaper at the time, the Stowmarket, Stowmarket Chronicle, was a central reading to keep abreast of the truly local events happening in the town and immediately surrounding area. Its demise was a sad day, indeed. Since those days, the population of Stowmarket has increased to approximately 22,000, and even in these days of social media, it is very good to have excellent local journalism. Two stories from the Stowmarket focus section stood out for me. The installation of speed indicator devices called SIDS, is good for reminding you that they are exceeding the speed limit. The other story of note for me was the revised opening hours for the Duck and the Teapot Cafe at Needham Lake. I am glad that things have now been sorted. The staff were very stressed on the opening day when we visited, as to use a common expression. They were probably an unprecedented demand for the food and drinks on offer. I am pleased that things are now sorted. A superb journalistic initiative from the Berry Free Press, which is very welcome. Well done indeed. RJ Edwards of Colford writes, I live at Broccoli Corner at Colford, and I'm fed up with the speed of vehicles thundering around the corner and damaging our homes. After 25 years ago, sorry, about 25 years ago, the Berry Free Press published an article about the traffic problem at Broccoli Corner. But nothing has changed. This corner is still an accident black spot. We've had many crashes, and just last month there were two in a week, one of them closing the B1106 for three hours. You take your life in your hands when walking the dog, and cars miss you by inches, and it's all down to speed. We need to reduce the speed limit to 30 miles an hour. 
and extend the 30 mile an hour limit from Culford Village to Rat Hall Corner, making the road safer and more environmentally friendly. My next letter is written by Brian, Brian Davis of Bury St Edmunds, and he says more seem to be masking up. Coincidence, perhaps, or might it be that the letter Miss Miller in last Friday's Bury Free Press gave some people cause to rethink their views regarding the wearing of face masks when mixing with shoppers. Without doubt, there was a marked increase in the number of customers being masked up today. That was Monday. And this, hopefully, might lead to a chain reaction which, until this wretched virus is stamped out, can only be for the good and everyone's welfare. And a short letter from Peter Webb of Berry St Edmunds. On arriving at my home in Backton, which I share with my partner, I discovered we'd been burgled. On ringing the police to report the incident, they arrived within 30 minutes from Berry St Edmunds and forensics arrived about 10 minutes later. They were very thorough and kept us both informed on the progress of the incident. They could not be more efficient and supportive. My last letter is written by um, Janet Douglas and she lives in Framlingham and she says thanks to Anglian Water. Sir, I think we should think, thank Anglian Water for managing our water supply so well. As long as we are careful with the amount of water we use, we should escape a hosepipe ban this year. And if you thought that letter was short, how about this one from <laughs> Clifford Davy of Stowmarket, headed Food for Thought. Sir, a professor has come up with the idea to eat our food with mouths open. He was obviously hungry for publicity. Sometimes I wish these experts would keep their mouths closed. Our first feature article, Rachel Moore, writes that hot tubs are out as a threat of drought looms large. Don't flush your wee, share a short shower. Keep a small bowl of water by the sink to wash your hands. Reluctant as I am to catastrophize, oh sorry, I can't pronounce it, a situation <laughs> with five <laughs> ongoing national emergencies, to quote Dad's army, Private Fraser, we're doomed. It's time to wake up and all do our bit to mitigate against the worst of the cluster of right old mess-ups we're in, even if this is only turning off the tap while you brush your teeth. Every little helps, and with the magnitude of issues the UK faces, it's probably all individuals can do. On top of everything else, warnings are in crescendo about droughts in August. Hot tub and garden pool brigade might be sticking their fingers in their ears, continuing to soak up tens of gallons per household on their home leisure centres. But the summer of 2022 will be remembered for the time when the UK grasped reality of what we all take for granted. Until this year, water, electricity and gas were literally on tap. Rarely a second thought was given by anyone to where they came from, because they were there, like magic, to do their jobs, switched on and off at will, as long as bills were paid. Almost overnight, they are increasingly scarce commodities and face shortages. We prolificate with them all. Now, at the prolonged dry weather stage, with drought conditions and water restrictions looming, comes a warning that escalating energy bills from October well may, may well top £4,000 a year, with January bills alone at £500. 
that, in most families' cases, is disastrous. There hasn't been a drought in England for four years, and while the horrifying fires of last week in record temperatures felt like freak events, they were just the start of a new normal threat of new normal threatening to destroy more homes, land, and life as the climate crisis escalates. The most severe on record was in 1976, when water supplies were restricted, trees were destroyed by moisture stress, and dried out moor and heathland set on fire. Last week's temperatures dwarfed those. Everyone, hot tub owners, that means you, has a responsibility to use water and energy responsibly and treat them as they as they are valuable, crucial resources to be treated with respect. Most of our water goes down the bathroom plug hole, so is the obvious place to start. Surprisingly, only 1% of water use is via garden hose pipes, although that's the first restriction to be imposed in droughts. Each person uses an average of around 150 litres a day. Our showers, 60 litres, versus 80 litres, accounts for 25% toilet, 22%, and taps, 29%. The UK uses an estimated 16 billion litres of water every day, across homes and businesses, according to the Energy Saving Trust. The National Drought Group, the Environment Agency and water companies this week urged people to be mindful with their usage to avoid shortages during hotter spells. We should all invest in energy-efficient shower heads and units to decrease our water usage. In the kitchen, washing machines use the most water, 9%, use only for full loads, followed by hand wash dishes, 4%, and the dishwasher, 1%. It's basic, but boiling the kettle with only enough water for what you need isn't an effective way to conserve water. It's time we grasp the, the scarcity of what we treat as plentiful supplies and become mindful, responsible users. Times of emergence call for emergency measures. It's time to buckle up and face the nightmare time ahead full on. There's no point moaning about the situation. It's as it is, and we all must do our bit, carefully and responsibly, with water, energy and fuel. Be mindful, not miserable, and empty those hot tubs and garden pools on your lawns and beds, unless you want to become social pariahs. If you can't share a bath, share a car. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I must agree with all that. And, of course, I, I take a bath once a month, whether I need it or not. <laughs> okay. Anyway, our next feature... Uh, is by uh, the author Nigel Pearson, who shares his love of all things otherworldly and his top two lesser-known regional tales. And whether you believe these or not is up to you. Folklore, mythology and all things magical have interested most of us at some point in our lives, but one man who has dedicated his life to all things spiritual is Nigel Pearson. An Ipswich-based author and folklore expert, he's your man when it comes to local folk stories, witchcraft, myths and more. You could even go as far as to say he's Suffolk's very own folklore encyclopaedia. But how did he develop such an interest in the folk world? It's all down to my mother, he chuckles. Most children are brought up on fairy stories and she would read those to me. 
but she also used to read me Egyptian, Greek, Roman and Viking myths and legends, so I was brought up on the fact that gods and goddesses were real. Nigel became so enamoured with the world of mythology and folklore that he tailored his studies to them as he grew older. Like most people, I studied RE at school, and I later took it during my O and A levels before going on to study philosophy at college, he says. After completing his studies and spending some time travelling, Nigel returned to the UK and realised a plethora of traditions, mythology and stories we have here, especially in East Anglia. I came back to the British Isles and found that we've got our own nature traditions, so I began to study those and I've never looked back. And I find living here in Suffolk very much lends itself to folklore and spirituality. This is an Anglo-Saxon area, so we've got centuries worth of heritage from people that came over here in waves. Over the period of around 700 years, right after the Romans left, the Angles and the Saxons started coming over, followed by all these different people, right up until the last invasion, which was the Normans. They all brought their own particular folk tales, religious beliefs and spirituality with them, and all of that has fed into this area. And to this day, we still have remnants that are still told by people in this area, he explains. Nigel, who is a qualified herbal practitioner and runs Ipswich-based shop Sacred Earth with his husband, Anthony, has also penned a number of books focusing on folk legends and tales from far and wide. I wrote my first book, Treading the Mill, Workings in Traditional Witchcraft, sort of by accident. I was doing a series of weekend workshops and writing notes on each session for people to take away with them, and anyone who knows me will tell you I'm incapable of writing a short sentence, so these notes ended up becoming booklets. After a while, I had a collection of them, and someone said to me, why don't you write them up and turn them into a book? And that's exactly what he did. Twelve years later, Nigel is currently working on his sixth book, which he hopes to release sometime next year. He started out with an idea in mind, but it's changed along the way but essentially it's going to feature a mix of local folklore and some magical techniques I've learned from the area. It's a magical book with a Suffolk flavour, but it keeps changing as I go along, he says. While Nigel is currently halfway through his upcoming release, here are some of his favourite lesser-known local folklore tales. The Fairy Folk of Stowmarket in Suffolk, the fairy folk were known as fairies, or fairies, or Pharisees, and were most commonly seen around the town of Stowmarket. The fairies frequented several houses in Tavern Street in Stowmarket, but never appeared as long as anyone was around. People used to lie hidden to see them, and some succeeded. In one instance, a large company of them appeared singing, dancing, and playing music together with together by Woodstack near the brickyard. They were very small people, quite little creatures and very merry, but as soon as they saw anybody they all vanished away. In the houses after they had fled, continuous sparks of fire, as bright as stars, used to appear under the feet of the people who disturbed them. This also ties in with another name for the fairy folk, Perrys, after which the northern lights are known in Suffolk, the Perry Dancers. The Suffolk Merfolk 
The name mermaid derives from Old English mere, meaning a pool or lake, and it formed the first part of meowith, meaning mere wife, a term still preserved in the East Anglian dialect. This is the term applied to Grendel's dam or mother, a cannibalistic ogress who lived beneath a lake, described in the Anglo-Saxon classic Beowulf, which many scholars now think was originally written in East Anglia. Like the ogress, the mere wives haunted the pools, pits and rivers of the inland areas rather than the seashores and were thought to pull in anyone who was foolish enough to lean too far over the water. The river Gipping in Suffolk was notorious for containing them, and Earl Stonham Man James Bird, born in 1788, wrote in an 1837 poem about his boyhood in the area and his mother calling out to him, Make haste and do your errand, go not nigh, the river's brink, for there the mermaids lie, be home at five. The mere wives, however, mainly lived in pools and pits, which, like the lake in Beowulf, were described as bottomless. There were the mermaid pits in Fornham All Saints, and the well in the village of Rendlesham, and also those in the surrounding districts, which were all reputed to contain mermaids. A correspondent to Robert Chambers' Book of Days, 1863-4, writing from Suffolk, informed him that mermaids abounded in the ponds and ditches of his locality. He wrote, I once asked a child what mermaids were, and he was ready with his answer at once. Them nasty things will chrome or hook you into the water. Local historian Martin Taylor looks back to 2012 and the terrible end of jeweller Peter Avis. This year marks the 10th anniversary of a terrible event that occurred at number 20 Abigate Street, the jewellery business owned by Peter Avis. Mr Collis opened a jeweller's here in 1805, although the property itself dates from around 1720. It has a flying freehold with number 19. The shop front was designed by a London shop fitter, Sage of Clerkenwell, in 1897. At the same time, the display cases, still evident up until 2012, were installed. The trading name of Collis continued with its purchase in 1921 by William Miles, passing to his daughter and then on to her son, Peter Avis. He was one of the last owners of a business in Bury St Edmunds, sorry, in Bury, to occupy his shop premises. He was a quiet, unassuming man, and as he got older his mobility was impaired, probably due to a brain aneurysm several years earlier. You could hear, you could enter his shop and stand there for quite a while until he came through. Like many jewellers, he relied on repeat business for his merchandise. However, it was said by many, how did he make a living? Rumours circulated that he dabbled in the bullion market, buying and selling gold, though whether this was true is pure conjecture. It was possibly this that may have led to a botched burglary on January the 13th, 2012, by five Polish nationals. The ringleader and responsible for stabbing Peter to death was, and I'm saying by a Polish man whose name I cannot attempt to pronounce, who was wanted, who was a wanted man for other offences in Poland. 
Eventually, he and his accomplices were tracked down and sent to trial at Ipswich Crown Court. There, on August 13th, he pleaded guilty after a two-week trial. He later received a life sentence with a minimum tariff of 25 years on November the 16th for his heinous crime. The others were given a shorter range of prison sentences for burglary. Peter, a vulnerable man, was just 66 years old when he was killed. How are you coping with this very hot, dry weather? I know my garden doesn't like it at all. When I walk across the front lawn and close my eyes and know exactly what it's looking like because it goes crunch, crunch, crunch <laughs> instead of swish, swish under my feet. And he says a short feature about Geoffrey Ingham's dip on the hill garden, which is now open to visitors as part of the National Garden Scheme. Visitors have a chance to peek into one of the county's most unusual green spaces thanks to the National Garden Scheme. Over a span of nearly two decades, Geoffrey and Christine Ingham have utterly transformed their plot into an outdoor oasis, carefully designing, crafting and planting up what is surely one of Suffolk's most intricate and interesting gardens. The results are stunning. Aptly named Dip on the Hill, the one-acre plot in Oosden is scooped out of the south-facing landscape, nestled behind a 15th-century thatched cottage and, amazingly, began life as a couple of Scots pines and a bit of a mess in between. The couple who moved to the county from Cambridge in 2005 have always had an interest in gardening. Explaining the inspiration behind the green-fingered masterpiece, Geoffrey says, It looked like a good sight, and I've always been interested in unusual plants that weren't often grown. I like evergreen plants, as you've always got something all year round. What I wanted to create was something permanent, and something that defies winter. With that in mind, Geoffrey soon got to work, bringing his vision to life. We got a mini bulldozer and a digger in, and cleared the whole lot, except the perimeters. Being quite old, I'm 80 now, I can't plant saplings at my age, so I got trees and plants from Cambridge and transplanted them, and over the years they've developed. Geoffrey also built on his love of architectural plants, shape and form, influenced by Japanese gardens. As you step into the Ingham's garden, you're met with exactly that. There are pine trees and bamboo, topiary and cloud forms in every shade of green. The end result is a calm, reflective place that uses the light to play through the vertical planting as the day progresses and the seasons turn. Always green is a garden for contemplation and immersion. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsby News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, the Havel Echo and the Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sheila... Harvey and Chris, it's goodbye. Goodbye.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.